Hello and welcome to the Swift Coders Podcast, where each week we interview an amazing Swift developer about their experience with Apple's new open source programming language. We hear their stories, learn their tips and tricks, and try to leave you feeling inspired and empowered on your Swift Coder journey. I'm your host, Garrick, and today's guest is Yareev Nassim. Yareev is a senior iOS developer at TrueCar. Welcome to the show, Yareev. Hi, Garrick. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So before we begin, I just want to thank another uh, reviewer. His name is Peter LA 81 Peter says, nice review, five stars. And I quote, as someone new to iOS development, Garrick's interview, Garrick's interview with an experienced developer provides great insight and valuable guidance. Garrick's interview style is relaxed, but do not lose focus. I think he means does not lose, lose focus. I subscribed and looked forward to more interviews on this podcast. Thank you so much, Peter, for leaving that review. And this is exactly why the Swift Coders podcast exists. So, Yareev, how's it going? Very good. How are you? I am excellent. What are you up to? Well, just um, had to provide some tech support for my uh, mother-in-law. Luckily, <laughs> iMessage lets you connect to a computer remotely without any setup whatsoever. Very cool feature if anybody nice. else wants to use that. This is amazing if you have a uh, Mac on both sides. Yeah, I do that with my parents, actually, uh, where you can actually control the, the other computer, right? Yes, yes. That's, that's very helpful with... Uh, you know, parents and grown-ups uh, who need support, and you can't just drive two hours just to help them out. <laughs> right on, right on. All right, so you work at TrueCar. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I've been working for TrueCar for over seven months now, I think. It's an amazing company. I can say that this is the best company i worked for so far in my long career of development. And I love it very much. I have a very uh, good team. We collaborate and we learn from each other. And that's exactly how I enjoy <clears throat> uh, working and writing code. How much do you work with Swift at TrueCar? Right if, now, if I'm working... If you're able to tell us. <laughs> yeah, right now I'm doing 100% in Swift. Every Every new code that we write is fully Swift. Wow, that's awesome. But you guys probably have a lot of lines of Objective-C code, right? Yeah. The app has been around for about five years, and the code is mostly Objective-C. So if we have to make some fixes, we do it in Objective-C, but if we have the chance, we just scratch it and start over with Swift. So some objects or some files uh, or classes you might be rewriting in Swift, but uh, is it mostly that you're creating new classes or new objects or new files in Swift? Yeah, it's it's mostly view controllers. When we create a new screen or a new flow, we use Swift to start it. Most of our objects are in Objective-C uh, for the plain reason that we're using some third-party libraries to generate them, and it's all in Objective-C right now. Awesome. So how's that been for you? I mean, because you have a lot of experience in Objective-C, um, from my understanding. How's that mm -hmm. been being able to, are you, I mean, cause you're still writing Objective-C code, right? So are you kind of juggling both? Yes, I am. And it's not an easy task. The, um, the basic, the connection or the um, bridging between Objective-C and Swift is not always obvious and it's not always easy to solve when you try to write some code in Swift and then call it from Objective-C. There's a lot of process to get things working, even though the project is set up for both. It's not fun, but it's a good experience to have. It's a good thing to learn. I worked with uh, one Objective-C class. It was uh, Reachability, Apple's Reachability uh, class. And I think that was, that's an Objective-C. And, you know, I just added a bridging header. I think maybe it did it for me. And I didn't really have much trouble. You're saying that sometimes when you're working with a bridging header from uh, Swift to Objective-C code, there, there can be some issues. Well, our project is very complex. We're using multiple frameworks. Some of them are ours. Some of them are third-party frameworks. And all of them are in Objective-C, but when you mix 
code within a framework in Swift and Objective-C and you want to expose it outside, there is no bridging header. There's actually an umbrella header for the framework. And there are some different settings that you have to do to get everything working and recognize in the project. It's a mm. little more complex than creating a new project. That would be a lot easier. Mm. But unfortunately, we can't just you know delete it all and start over. It'll take right. us years. Right on. Okay. So I want to back up a little bit and learn about Yareev. Where did Yareev come from? Uh, were you programming, you know, since you were, you know, five years old? Or is this something that you started uh, later on in your life? Um, how, how did you get into programming? Actually, the first language I ever learned was BASIC on a Commodore 64. I was maybe 10 or 11 at that time. And I found a couple of basic books in um, my parents' <clears throat> um, pile of old books. And I just opened the Commodore and started writing code. And it was really fun. It was it was very old school, very different than writing code today. But I felt very uh, engaged and very connected to the process. And when my parents got the, new, the first computer... I started learning quick basic just because it was, um, you know, was a little geek at that time. And in school, we did some uh, Pascal in a uh, computer programming class. And I was at the top of my class. So everybody copied my homework. <laughs> yeah. And my dad saw the potential. And when I joined the military back in Israel, it's a mandatory service. My dad was like, you got to do something with your talent. You got to do some computers. So I signed up to military programming school, passed the tests. They were very difficult, got in, and that was my first step in the professional world of programming. I did that for six years in the military. And after that, everything else was a breeze. Uh, once you get that experience, it's in Israel, at least it's very easy to get a good job and and that was the first the first time I got to do it uh, in a setting where I'm surrounded by other developers and other smart people, and I get to learn and do it every day. So you it sounds like you got interested at a pretty young age, 11 years old. You excelled. You had someone in your life to encourage you to say, hey, you know, you should take this to the next level. You went to uh, military programming school. You said you passed the test and you just really excelled. That's that's awesome. But I want to go back to when you said you were 11 and you started learning basic on a Commodore and you were kind of you found some books at your your uh, family's place. Like, how did you were, were, like, how did you have this idea? Did you just see the computer and you're like, what is this thing? Or because for me, I don't really remember being that interested in computers. I remember having a computer, but not thinking like this is something that I could program or this is something that, you know, the, the most creativity I did with a computer was like make beats or make like word art or make, you know, little painting drawings. Like, so how did it occur to you at 11 years old that you could do something like this? Um, I don't know. I just, I was always attracted to computers and technology. And ever since I was a kid, I can't say I was good with technology. I always try to fix everything, but I didn't really know how to fix it. So I usually made it worse or broke it completely. <laughs> but I think that was the only way to learn. It just, you just got to open a computer and do it. And my parents got a, a computer, I think a, a year or two after that Commodore experience. And I just, was completely into it. I just spent my nights and days on it. I was addicted to a point that was I was not going out and playing anymore. I was just froze in front of the computer and trying to push any kind of button possible. It was uh, Pack Packard Bell or something like that. And I was completely addicted. What were you I, programming? What were you making the computer do? Um, wow. I wasn't really programming at that time. I wasn't like writing code and building software, but I was learning some scripting languages. Um, DOS has uh, batch files that you could go and write some commands and get things happening. And QBasic was something that I played with a little bit. I can't say I was a programmer at the time, but 
I was interested in, in digging and understanding how the operation system works and what is possible. And I destroyed this computer. I <laughs> wiped it a million times. I had to reinstall it so many times that I just, it was a weekly thing. I broke in, installed Windows over and over and over. And that's, that's just how I learned to work with computers in general. And when you start writing code, you actually, when you already know how the computer works, you're actually in the, in the mind of the computer. At least that's how I feel. I understand how things happen uh, behind the scenes and it helps me understand my code better. It sounds a little abstract, but um, in the military, that was a very important thing we learned, how the bits and bytes work within your code and how everything is translated into assembly and then bytecode and stuff like that until you get to the binary stuff and it helps you understand the code a lot better. And I think being attracted and wanting to know how things work underneath is what made me a developer today. It was the natural evolution for me. That's really interesting. I feel like it's kind of the opposite for me. I am attracted to, I love my iPhone and I, I wanted to make an app for it, right? And I think a lot of people are getting into iOS development for that same reason. Had I needed to learn bits and bytes first and then get to where we are now, this more higher level programming where we're you know, usually just working with frameworks, I don't know. I mean, I probably could have done it, but it didn't happen that way for me. And I'm kind of going backwards. I'm, I'm starting from this more higher level programming, and now I'm slowly, slowly starting to get more interested in getting deeper in how to how does you know computers actually work. But at the same time, I feel super blessed that I don't really have to learn it yet. But I am kind of afraid, like if some for some reason one day I'm going to need to know that stuff, and and I don't like if. Uh, I don't know if the computer breaks or something and I, and I need to know all the bits and bytes to fix it. But yeah, honestly, I left it all behind me. I got tired of trying to keep up. It's good to understand binary. It's good to understand hexa. I think it's important for every developer to know and have a basic understanding of it. But I'm, I'm far from an expert. You know, I, I'm like you. I like the high level coding. I don't want to dig into the assembly code of something. Right, right. It was it was a hobby back then and it was good to learn and well, it got you I'm to where you, you are. It yeah. got you to where you are now, so. Yeah, I'm with you. I'm I'm not digging into that anymore. I like the higher level stuff now. I think architecture and algorithms are a lot more interesting than playing with the bits and bytes. But that's right. just my own personal feeling. Doesn't mean other people can't enjoy that. Well, no, and we need people to focus on that stuff. Definitely. So, so tell me a little bit more about the military programming school. Uh, what did you learn? Uh, what like what uh, languages were you working with? And then uh, I think, uh, actually, I, I didn't tell the story of how we met. So real quick, Yariv came to Learn Swift LA. Um, I almost didn't open up the wait list. I think Yariv was on the wait list and because we usually meet at small places and, you know, I don't want there to be not enough room. So anyways, I opened up the wait list and good thing I did because Yareev showed up and someone asked a question. We didn't really have a topic for that night. And um, someone asked a question like, how do you segue to another view controller and pass information back and, you know, back and forth between these view controllers? And Yareev took over that meetup and just, you know, and basically had everybody you know, he, he was just leading the whole meetup and, and it was really awesome. And it was, I was felt so blessed to have someone like you come to the, uh, learn Swift LA. And we've basically been, uh, you know, buds ever since, you know, in doing all these uh, amazing things in the LA developer community. So that's how, um, I met your And, and I know from, from, we've talked before, you taught a little bit in the, uh, in the military, right? You taught a little bit about, uh, you taught people how to program. Isn't that correct? I was, I can't say I taught people how to program. I was more of a um, instructor or a mentor for the young recruits okay, in the cool. team. After a few years, you just um, gain some experience and knowledge and you help people, you, br uh, you bring people into the team and teach them how to interact and work with our code. Okay, awesome. So then what were you, what were you guys learning in military program school? What languages? And then how did you transition to iOS eventually? Oh, that's a long story, but <clears throat> let, let's try to keep it short because I, I spent uh, six months in military training in, um, in uh, computer science school or programming school in the military. 
and you basically learn everything, everything that existed at the time. Most of it was in C, but before you even get to writing code, you learn algorithms and you learn how to convert bytes to decimals, to hexes, to octals. You learn all those basics in computer science and it's not, it's not easy for a person who never had done that before. And you learn the history of computers and the history of programming languages. And you start with, um, we start with C and we moved our way up to C++ and Java came out at that time. And we they just threw a couple of Java books at us and told us that we have a day to learn that and we have to write a program in, <laughs> in Java. They just teach you how to learn. Mostly. So it sounds like it sounds like military programming school for you is almost like a, a computer science degree for someone in the U.S. In a way, it's, I honestly I don't know what they learn in computer science degree here, but it was a mix of everything. It's the the focus is not to teach you one language. So we touch we touched everything. We touched C, C plus plus, Java. There was no .NET at that time. Java was fresh, so we just learned it at the end. Um, we used JavaScript, VB, VB8. That was a big thing at that time. Visual Basic. I don't know if anybody used that today, but we used a lot of Visual Basic, uh, VBScript. Um, we learned how to program uh, on Unix. We <coughs> learned some Unix, Unix basics, mainframe basics. We basically touched everything that existed at that period of time. It was uh, 2002. And whatever they could... Um, feed into us they did they just in six months we had like about 10 10 hours a day of <laughs> of writing code and uh learning and so then uh, what were you actually uh, eventually when you got out of military programming school i assume you worked for the military and did you like did you actually like what would you program like radar systems and and i don't know like personnel management software or like well just anything uh, yeah like, well, what, you just go where they tell you to go. Um, they give you a choice. Uh, they might consider your choice. Um, I chose to go to Air Force and I got in. Oh, wow. And that's awesome. Yeah. I, I loved that. I was in love with the Air Force. I was wanted Wait, to be so a pilot. Wait, so did you fly? I did not fly. Um, you have to have a certain physical qualities, like not having glasses, to be able to fly. And after a few years, I actually did uh, do a laser surgery and try to get into pilot school, but uh, it, was, it was too much. I was too so, old. <laughs> it was so not if, easy. If you weren't yeah. going to be a programmer, you were going to be a pilot. There are a lot of there are a lot of pilots actually convert to programming after a few years. Interesting. Yes, we had a lot of pilots in my unit. My most of my officers were pilots. Um, I I spent most of my days in the military surrounded by pilots. <laughs> I know that's that's kind of crazy. Uh, to think about pilots writing code. But that's, for some reason, a lot of pilots just enjoy that. They think about retirement. They think about moving to something else because you can't fly forever. And a lot of them are very smart people and very interested in technology. And apparently it's a natural evolution for a pilot to go into the tech industry, at least in the Air Force. And I was um, assigned to a project that is called ERP, it's Oracle technology that manages organizations, like you said, HR, financial systems, um, invoices, stuff like that. I was um, at that team and I wrote a lot of SQL code, PL SQL, um, Oracle databases. I was certified DBA, doing a lot of database work. I loved it. I was reading articles every day. I read the whole... Uh, SQL and PL SQL manual and I was slowly building myself up just because it was fun and I started posting emails every week of a new subject and topic I learned in SQL and PL SQL and like a mailing list or something yeah I just sent it to my team and to the whole project every week I would just uh, read a new topic stay up all night uh, write some code and then post it to everybody or how to improve the performance of a SQL query or how to write a better uh, loop in PL SQL, how to write a store procedure that's a lot more efficient and could do a lot more things or stuff like that, you know, just because it was fun. And little by little, I started like taking over the 
you know, that field and I started training the new developers and I started giving them lectures about how to write good code and how to uh, write better code and how to uh, do things that we do at the team that they don't teach in military school. And that's uh, that was my first touch with, um, I don't want to say education, but training or lecturing to other people. Right, and, right. And it was very fun. I was definitely not a professional, but that was um, that was kind of my passion. I don't know, sharing that knowledge, helping other people learn what I just did. Preaching to the choir, man. And yeah, that's... Um, so how did you transition to iOS? Well, after the military, um, I took a job doing some ERP work, and it was not as exciting as the military. It was just boring, honestly. It was too easy and not as um, fulfilling as it was in the military. So I was looking for something else to do. I have not done iOS yet, but I was um, the last year of college. I started college during the, the military. and what, started- year? what year is this? Like, uh, is it around the iPhone when iPhone just came out? Yeah, it was around that time. I I don't remember. I think I finished college in 2008. No, I started 2008 and I finished 2010. So it was 2009 or 2010, something like that. Okay, cool. Not sure exactly. Um, It was a little bit after the the, the first iPhone came out. And I was just switching jobs i took a job for three months i i quit after three months because i hated it in erp and oracle stuff and i was looking for new things after that i got to hp did some performance work because i had a lot of experience in performance and databases and stuff like that and i hated it as well and again it was my last year in college i think it was 2010 i was still working for hp and i was looking for my final project. What what do I want to do uh, as my final project for college? And I came up with an idea to build an app. So, what was the I, idea? Oh, uh, well, it was a very it was a very good idea. I have to say, um, <laughs> yeah, and I'm going to tell you why. I um, we had a system, a web system, a web site for college that we had to log in to view our grades and important notifications and to see our schedule so whenever you did a test and you wanted to see how much you got you had to log in and you know go in every day or every hour to see if uh, if they posted the final scores yet and you just have to go on the website which was very hard to go into it was a very shitty website at that time and everybody had an iphone it was like very cool and I came up with the idea of building an app that just, without logging in every time, you just open the app and you get either a notification or you just log into this, open that screen. You can see your, your scores and what your next uh, class is and your schedule. And people are like, oh, my God, this is so cool. We all hate the website. It was not the website was not designed for mobile. You had to have a computer with Internet connection. You have to remember your password, which was very complex. Did they have an um, open API for you to access no, the data? No, they did not. And that was the hard part. I was struggling to get an API and they did not understand what it means. I was like, <laughs> I need access. I need I need an API. I need a URL. I need some JSON way to log in a RESTful interface. And they did not understand what I wanted from them. And they connected <laughs> me with their technology department, with the IT department in college. And they're like, we can't give you access. That's personal information. I was like... I don't need you to give me access to the data. I need you to give me access to the system so that I can write an API that logs in. And they just didn't know what I was talking about. So I filed um, <clears throat> I filed some requests to get like access to the database. Yeah. <laughs> and they just sent me a fake database file what? <laughs> with like fake grades. Like, just use that. I was like, what am I supposed to do with it? It's I got nothing to do with the, you know, with database file. It contains numbers and, you know, f- fake great. They just didn't know what I, want, I wanted from them. I ended up building the app and I couldn't connect to the college data system. Oh, man. Uh, to do anything with it. But 
but I did get to build the app and I had a good friend, a uh, UI designer that helped me design a big poster and, <clears throat> and design all the assets. So the app looked great, um, but everything was static information. I still submitted it and got a grade for it, but unfortunately I couldn't pu publish the app to the app store because they had no idea what a RESTful interface was at that time. <laughs> Oh man! I know it's it's embarrassing, um, but that was that. your first. Project, but that was I mean, my first awesome. idea, and that's that was my first uh, step with uh, iOS. I actually used the Hackintosh to build it because I didn't have a Mac, and Mac in Israel were very expensive, like almost twice the price. So I had a, a laptop, and I managed to install uh, OS ten on it. At that time, it wasn't illegal. You could actually purchase software to let you install OS 10 on your Mac, on your, I'm sorry, on your PC. And at the same same year, Apple actually um, went to court and got it to be illegal and shut down their company. Oh, I had never heard that before. Yeah. It was called PsyStar, PsyStar, something like that. I had to pay to get in and the company went away and I had no support. But I got Mac running on my laptop. Then... Then I could install Xcode. It was very shaky and okay. half of, uh, you know, half of the drivers were missing. So I couldn't like use audio and the screen was low resolution. And I can't believe I wrote code like that and got it to actually write and compile and install on an iPhone. And now you bring up a good point, actually, um, how here in the U.S., we're in a good position to be able to be um, iOS developers. You do need a Mac workstation, you know, and I'm one of my testers for um, this project that I was working on is in Armenia and he's really interested in becoming an iOS developer but he doesn't have a Mac and it's really expensive to get a Mac in Armenia it's like cheaper to probably buy one here and, and ship it uh, you, you know over there so so did you ever present the idea to your your school and say hey this is something that you guys actually should need and I'll build it for you or did you they just weren't receptive um, I, they were not ready for it at that time. They were using, um, they're using a, a company to, to maintain and build a website. And I think they ended up purchasing some, some software to manage that. And it came with an app. A few years I wonder later, if they have an app college, now. I heard that, <clears throat> yeah, I think they have an app. They have some management system that allows students to log in and see their grades. And they also have an app that supports it. It was years later. I after I left college, I wasn't, uh, you know, wasn't in touch with what was going on there. But it took them years to move forward. But we all know how it works. You know, those big institutions are very slow to adapt to technology. Right. Uh, so, but the the fine. cool thing though is that you had this idea, you built mm -hmm. it. Yeah, it's a bummer. It didn't get to go to the app store because you weren't, you didn't have access to the API. But it sounds like. This was a pivotal moment for you. You were interested uh, in building an app. You had an app idea. You built it um, in, a, in a pretty complete way. And then what happened after that? It seems like you you liked it and you continued to, to, you know, to do yeah. it. What did you do next? Well, that was the moment I, I decided this is what I want to do. That was my, um, my last year in college. I just graduated. I was working for HP Software in Israel. And I did not like my job. And I took a vacation to the U.S. Uh, Janie and I came to L.A. for a month. Janie is my wife today. And I bought a Mac here in the States. I brought it back with me to Israel. And I left HB and decided that this is what I'm going to do full time. And I found a small startup in Tel Aviv that... I was willing to hire me for a really bad pay, <laughs> <laughs> but and I was working from home and uh, office and, you know, I was available on days and weekends and I just learned as much as I can. And I wrote awful code, really bad. It's embarrassing to look at my code today, but <laughs> just that's how I learned, you know, just wrote whatever was necessary. They needed to build a new screen or new custom view or some new interaction or change something that the customers want, wanted and I just did it. I just spent day and night reading and writing code and do that's you remember, the only way to learn. Do you remember what was going 
on in your head at the time or like what you felt after you completed that first project and you you decided, you know what, I don't want to to work for this other company and do what I'm doing. I do I want to do iOS. Like what what were you feeling at the time? Do you remember what it was about iOS that that was you made you so drawn to it? Um it was just fun. It was really fun building an app and seeing people use it. You know, just the yeah, feeling that you built something that people use. Most of the code that I wrote, basically all of it, is so far from users. You don't really get to see who uses your code and what they do with it. or you, It's either server-side code or SQL queries or something like that that doesn't really touch people. It's very, it's very fun to write. It's very impressive to write code that processes millions of records and basically touches the U.S. The U.S. I'm sorry, the uh, Israeli Air Force budget. And I have serious stories about it. I did there, but you know that your mistakes can basically bring down the Air Force. It's exciting. It's very big. You feel like you got the responsibility of, you know, of a very important person just because you write code that affects the whole country, but you don't get to see people interact with your software. You don't get to see reactions. You can't tell people what you're doing. You can't show it to them. And I think building apps has all of those benefits. You affect million of, millions of people, but you also can come and show people what you've done. You can pull out an iPhone and say, this is the app, the app I built. This is an app I helped um, build from scratch. And I did this screen and I wrote this code. And people actually um, get excited with you. And I think this is the most attractive part of building apps for me is just, you know, having having something people use. Yeah, totally. So how did you get that first job? You said you convinced this startup to hire you. How did you how did you convince them? Um, well, they they contacted me. I posted um, my name and email at certain forums and said I'm looking for work as an IS developer I went to a ton of interviews I didn't get into any of them and because I just didn't have enough experience everybody wanted experience and I you know I had eight years of writing SQL code and performance and C but nobody wanted that everybody wanted Objective-C so the startup um, brought me for an interview and they had a task for me and I just, you know, played with the code and made it happen. And they're like, okay, you're in. You know, we can't pay you well, but you get to do whatever you want. You're the only developer here, so you get full control. That's awesome. What were you it. building? Um, they were doing um, catalog apps for, <clears throat> for big brands, for like fashion companies and stuff like that. So for, actually, for the, them to the like apps man- that I built were, I'm sorry? For them to manage their catalog or for them to like kind of keep track of it or no to to post it on the app store and have people buy now they could buy back then it was just to like you know have a catalog on on an iphone app so people could just go and see all the clothes and jewelries that the company is selling or furniture or flowers whatever companies are working with us so we had this template app that you know had like various v controllers to show catalogs and different um you know pictures and prices and different formats and we just customized it for the user for the were you the were you the only ios developer yes i was wow that's so cool man i was the only ios developer at every company i worked for until trugar wow yeah it's it sounds exciting but it's it gets kind of hard after a while you have to solve your own problems or review your own code and fix your own bugs. There's nobody there to ask and nobody to talk to and nobody to consult with when you need support. It's it's very exhausting. But I think it was a very good experience for me because that's how I learned everything myself. I just had to push myself harder. When there was a serious bug and I didn't know what to do, I just had to fix it because there's nobody else there to help me. Totally, yeah. On a way, I was building uh, you know, native Swift app and I was the only iOS developer. And I felt that same thing, you know, I had no one to really talk to, but at the same time, it was all on me. I had 
ownership over it. I could do anything I wanted. So it's a really, it's, it's an exciting thing, but at the same time, it can be kind of frustrating or, or solitary or lonely. But um, yeah, it's I am scary looking, sometimes. Yeah, because it's just all on you. Yeah, you basically the whole company is looking at you, waiting for you to get things done. Yeah, so now the the project is on hold, and you know I'm doing some other type of work, but I don't want to. I just pretty much I just want to do iOS, and so I'm looking for new positions, and but I'm just not sure what type of position I want. I mean, ultimately I'll probably take whatever I can get, but I'm not sure. Do I want to work with a really small team? Maybe I'm one of two or three developers. Or do I want to work with a bigger team? And because I like the idea of working on a team and getting that type of experience. So that's kind of what I'm going through right now. Well, like you said, just I would just go for whatever comes your way. Yeah. Um, so. you, you won't know if you enjoy that kind of work until you do it. Right. Good point. And, and that was for me. I enjoyed working by myself and I still do. But, you know, so having you... people to go launch with and talk about code with is just... It's just the world for me. I, I love it. I, I can't imagine not going to work and not having somebody to talk to about what I'm doing today. That's so cool. That, that makes me really excited to be able to work on a, a team of other iOS developers and just kind of geek out on everything that we're building. So how long did you work with Objective-C for? I, that's a good question. I started... To, learning at about 2010 i think i i started a blog in israel and i was posting stuff about objective c and written code back then um and today's 2016 so about four or five years five years even yeah wow so but then when swift came out in june 2014 uh, you had been at that point working with objective c for at least four years around four years and all of a sudden you know apple drops this new language uh what's going through your mind oh my god that was <laughs> i was i remember when it came on i was uh texting a developer friend in israel and she was like oh my god what do we do with swift i was like i don't know i think it's for games i'm not sure what to do with it well, i don't <laughs> want to learn a new language right now and she's like yeah i'm, I'm not interested and we're both like, yeah, we don't care about Swift. That seems like something for game development or something like that. We don't need that. You know, <laughs> we completely ignored Swift at that time. We thought it was just a fad or something. And um, <clears throat> I think a couple months later, it just got bigger and bigger. Everybody was talking about Swift. Everybody was excited about it. And I felt that I was left behind. You know, that technology is moving without me. And I started reading about that, and I decided that I have to learn Swift. And exactly at that point in time, I lost my And I was looking for a new job. I was also traveling. We were out of town, and we were traveling. We were driving up the West Coast. So I put the Swift guidebook on my iPad, and I would read it in a tent. We were camping. I would read it in the tent every night before I go to bed. And it the took Swift, me about a month. Uh, language reference? Yes, exactly, the official Apple book. And I was just reading it every night before I go to bed in a tent on my iPad. And, you know, a month later, I finished the book. Wow. And my mind was a blur. I was like, oh, my God, what did I just read? That was a ton of pages. I wrote zero code. You know, it's almost impossible to learn a language just by reading about it. Uh, right. You have to write some code. Especially for me. So... During my travels, I also interviewed for a couple of companies and I got a job in San Diego for, uh, for a company and I got in there and they're like, we need to rebuild our app because it hasn't been updated in three years. I was like, okay, well, we need to use some new technologies. They're like, yeah, whatever you want. So, nice. so I just started writing it in Swift. That was my first, uh, encounter. With Swift, that was the first time I wrote a line of code in Swift. I started a new job, and they were open to using Swift. It was, I think, 1.1 or something like that, or Swift 1. Not even 1.2. So I just spent all this time learning Swift and writing code in Swift and watching WWDC videos and uh, reading the book again and doing all that work. 
and that was that was exciting. I loved it. It was so crazy because nobody knew anything. You would search online. There's no there's no code to copy and paste. There's no code in Stack Overflow because nobody knows anything, and nobody wrote a line of code in Swift yet. You know. Wow, the wild wild west. Yeah, it was definitely that. Uh, we needed to parse JSON. <laughs> there was no library. There's still no reliable library to parse JSON today in Swift. And I just had to write my own. Uh, Thoughtbot wrote in a very cool um, library for parsing Swift, but it was too complex. And back then the compiler was too slow and too com- too complicated. Couldn't even parse anything. So I had to build my own JSON parsing library in Swift. And isn't there know, like a foundation function or something like that? Uh, NS JSON object from data or something? The NS JSON serialization. It just converts your um, your byte your data into a dictionary or an array, but it doesn't parse the JSON into objects. It just contains an array or dictionaries of any objects. There's nothing you could do with it unless you. You check every value and try to cast it to the appropriate type. But does that only matter when you don't know what you're getting? If you know everything that you're getting, then like you know every key and every value. Well, you still um, need to you, st- you still need to cast it into the appropriate type. You first of all, you have to know what you're getting. If you don't know what you're getting, uh, there's nothing you can do with this data. The JSON structure has to be well-defined for you to know what you're getting. You need to know all the keys in order to use them. And then you have to cast every value to the appropriate type. So if you're getting a number, you need to cast it into the, num- the appropriate number type. If you're getting string, you need to cast it into string. So so what happens is you get an array of objects or you get a dictionary of objects. And even though you know what types they are, Swift won't let you use them until you bind them with if let into the appropriate uh, type. Does that make sense? Yeah. So to parse a JSON of, you know, five keys, you have to do if let five times to to get the values out. Even though you know what's in there, you still have to write five if lets. And back then, every if let was its own uh, line of code. And you have to write if let if let, if let, if let five times. Right, you can just do the comma. Yeah, that's that's a new thing. And they used to call it the... Um, pyramid um, of Doom. What was it? Pyram- pyramid of Doom, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and people came out with different solutions to that. And it was, it was crazy times. So you built and your own JSON parser in Swift? S- yeah, yeah. I followed the um, Argo. That was the name of the library that ThoughtBot uh, right. built at that time. I, f- I followed some of their design patterns. But I had to build something a little bit different because theirs was a little too complex. And once you had three more ob- three objects, you, you couldn't even compile it. The compiler would just crash on you and say, too complicated, can't do it. So I had to build something simple. So I came out with um, my own solution. And I want to take how... a look at that. Uh, it won't, this code won't build anymore unless you get okay. an old X code. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I could send you the code if you want to look over it. Or maybe we're going to have to fresh it up. Are, are you not using it, or do you use something else? Well, you don't need that anymore. It's um, okay. It's for Swift 1.1. 1. 1. Uh, first of all, it's easier today to just use iflets than have your own custom libraries. And if you do want a, a custom library for parsing JSON, there's a very uh, diverse you know, collection of solutions out there. Swifty JSON uh, is one that I've heard. Yeah, I never used that one. It didn't really save me a lot of work. It's a very clean solution, but it didn't really save me a lot of work. Um, I still like to have control over my code, and I don't like to be dependent on the third-party library. For but sure. So <laughs> there was how are you company out it? there that released one. I don't remember the name. I think Lyft uh, released um, a, a library, but somebody released released a library that actually parsed the data. Instead of using NSJSON serialization, they, they just wrote their own parser and converting code. Um, so I was so going to take a look at that. How are you solving it now? I just like to use iflets. Okay. You know? Okay. It's just, just as simple. 
just concatenate all your flats and use some guards and and once you're done just you know I write an extension on every object that takes a you know a dictionary or in any object and it's parses it with if let's it's not that much code and gives you full control and you can actually debug it and see where it doesn't pass it's it's not worth in my opinion it's not worth the effort to build another library unless it's something that's designed for swift most libraries gives you back you know they give you back an object and you have to use some custom operators and you have to map it every time it's just very verbose and very uh, hard to debug. I don't like that. I don't like losing control in my code. So unless I find something that solves all those problems altogether, I'm just not going to use anything. I'm going to have to take a look at that and pick your brain more on that when I run into those issues. Real quick, I want to back up and talk about Swift comes out. You're thinking, ah, it's, it's a language for games. I don't need to learn it. Maybe a couple months go by, you decide you do want to learn it, and you go on this camping trip, and you're reading the Swift language uh, reference guide uh, from cover to cover. Now, someone like me, I'm a practical learner, I I won't really get that much, uh, be, and because of my background, I don't have a background in programming languages and computer science, just reading this guide from cover to cover, I have to do some type of application, like apply the language to a, you know, a concrete problem that I'm trying to solve and see, you know, what the result is. Now, I refer to the language guide when I need to. There are a lot of people out there, I think, that are like me, um, who aren't really going to benefit from reading cover, you know, it from cover to cover. But I think there are some people out there like you who really do benefit from that. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think, like, in order to be a good Swift developer, you have to have already read that thing cover to cover? Yes, I do. You do? Interesting. I well, I, think I better that I better hang up right now and uh, go do that. I think I I don't say you have to read it all at once, but in order to understand the language and know all the possible features that it gives you. You have to know about them. You have to find out about them somehow. Right. Now, a, a good way to start learning is to learn the basics. And it doesn't mean you have to go and read the whole book, but just read the first chapter or read the first few chapters or just, you know, just get another book, a beginner book or watch the Stanford videos. I watch them all. I watch them every year. I started watching them back in 2009, 2010. That was my first... Um, um, learning. That's how I start. Before I read any piece of code, I just watched those videos and did the homework. And every year I watch them and I learn something new. You know, there's there's always something to learn. And if you don't read, especially the official book that tells you everything about the language, you're not gonna know all that. And how are you how do you expect somebody to write good code when they don't even know uh, the kind of power that they have or the kind of features that the language gives them? There's there has to be um, a way for you to learn and I'm not saying the book is the only way to do it a lot of people don't learn from books but at least go over it and you know get a list of all the possible operators that you get and, and functions that the language gives you or different control flow methods exactly uh, different uh, syntaxes uh, using the new stuff uh, every time uh, Apple releases an update to that book, I go to the last page where they give you um, reference to all the changes, and I just go and, and read those changes, just so that That's I know. That's a good what, tip, right there. Yeah, just so that I know what I missed, because you you never know. You can't read the whole book every day. It it took me a month to read it last time, so just go and read the changes. You know, keep yourself updated in some way. Read some blogs. Uh, some people write summaries of all the changes that Apple did in Xcode and in Swift and Objective-C and all the new APIs that were released for every framework. The, the only way to do it is to go and read about it. So I understand not everybody can read and understand everything. I can't even say that by myself, but this book is not that complex. And I think it gives you a very good understanding of what the language can do. I think one cool thing you could do if you are a practical learner is read the Swift book and maybe have a playground open at the same time. A part of the, the book is 
uh, able to be opened and, and used as a playground. But I don't think the whole book is. But if you, you know, read the book and then use a playground um, and maybe kind of that way you can make the abstract concepts more concrete. I think people like me, you know, I'd benefit from that. And I, I love play playgrounds, actually. I just took a coding test for an application, um, a job application I just sent off. And I tested my um, solution in playgrounds and then, you know, wrote the wrote the code in the testing exam. So I think playgrounds, have you messed with those at all, playgrounds? Yes. Playgrounds is the best place to experiment with code. You know, in a lot of cases, you have to create a new project if just, you know, you want to create segues and stuff like that. But in uh, almost all other cases, you can even create a view in Playgrounds. So you don't have to create a new project just to experiment with a couple of lines of code. And I think Playgrounds is an amazing place to experiment. And they build it just for that. It's for you to experiment. And over time, people start using Playgrounds to, to teach and to pass information and to create books. So Apple adopted this approach and started adding features to Playgrounds that allow people to create whole books just in Playgrounds. And we're neglecting that. If we're not using Playgrounds, we're neglecting this amazing place that they created for us to go and play with code, literally. Yeah, I want to get involved with that more from um, a student perspective, like actually using Playgrounds to learn more. But then I, since I'm teaching on a weekly basis, I also want to learn more about how to use Playground as a teaching tool. Um, so, yeah, you make it. That's a good point right there. So we're getting towards the end of the sad, you know, end of this podcast. And, you know, I wish we could talk for hours and hours. And, you know, you and I will talk offline. But before we end, there's a couple of things I want to talk about. So next, let's see, not this coming Wednesday, um, but the uh, following, uh, you're going to be teaching uh, Swift Coders and Learn Swift LA at Thrive Market in Marina Del Rey. You're going to be talking about delegation, NS Notification Center, closures, and I'm hoping to actually stream that. So maybe people that are not in Los Angeles can benefit from that. Um, can you tell me a little bit about uh, what we're going to be learning? That uh, I just kind of had that thought. What are we kind of learning that uh, that week? Well, following your advice, I did not prepare anything concrete because um, usually, <laughs> nice. Usually, I have a very well-defined topic and code that I want to go over. But in this case, I want to be for a change a little more um, flexible and have people direct the lesson instead of me showing them what I want. Uh, but I want to focus on those different uh, design patterns <clears throat> of delegation and using closures today in Swift is a very good solution to replace delegation in a lot of cases. It was very right. nice in Objective-C, but in Swift, it's a lot cleaner. Blocks With closures. And, yeah, because blocks in Objective-C are ugly and they're almost impossible to remember the syntax like nobody remembers the syntax there's actually a website that <laughs> shows you how to use blocks just for a reference every time you need to write one because the syntax is just so complex in objective c in objective c yeah it's so, so beautiful in, in swift with the trail yeah. closure syntax i love that exactly and i actually wrote code this week um to replace the segue prepare for segue method with a trailing closure so Interesting. that yeah so that you could perform a segue and put the the code that is in the prepare for segue just put it in a completion handler instead of implementing it somewhere else wow and that's the are you going to be showing closures. us that um sure yeah wow that I, sounds I'm cool i'm building it for Chukar, but i'm happy to share it with everybody who's interested and so I then, just want to show the power of blocks. I mean, closures. Totally. Yeah. And then NS Notification Center is also kind of another way to send information. Um, yes. Maybe not send it back and forth, but at least uh, alert kind of other objects that things and, are happening. NS Notification Center, um, like uh, Paul Haggerty from, from the Sanford class used to say, it's like a radio station. Right. You just, you just uh, post it. And whoever wants to tune in and listen is welcome. So right. those are all solutions that are all valid solutions. 
but we need to understand when to use each because using delegates is is a very objective c pattern and is a very important pattern but people use it so much that it gets overused and i think in most cases they could have easily solved it with closures and completion handlers so i want to show how to use delegates and when to use them and how to use closures and when to use them and NS notifications are actually pretty straightforward. There's not a lot to show, but I want to talk about when that fits uh, and when to use them when delegation and closures are just too complex or are not appropriate. Totally. I love this. I'm so excited. I'm glad I don't have to teach that night and that you're going to be teaching because I'm really excited for uh, for this. Okay, so yeah, anybody I'm, I'm that can't join... Yeah, it's going to be awesome. Anybody that can't join us there in person, I will try my best to make sure that we can stream it live, either using a Google Hangout or maybe, um, I think it's called livecoding.tv or something so that you guys can participate on this too. Um, because why not? You know, we have all this technology at our hands. Um, why not be able to participate even though you can't be with us in person? Okay, so uh, we have two more things I want to talk about before the sad end of the podcast. The first is recent tweets. So I am looking at a recent tweet from February 3rd, and Yariv says, I didn't know about it either, exclamation point. And it looks like you're retweeting someone named Radek Petroyevsky. It's very hard to pronounce, it looks to me. Uh, T-I-L colon, you can use pound available with other conditions by separating, I'm sorry, by separating with a comma, not double ampersand. If X double equals uh, Y, pound available. So I think you're talking, uh, this Radic gentleman was talking about availability checking, I believe. Uh, but what what's actually going on there? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, that's a feature I rarely use. Well, I actually use it this week, but I rarely use it. It allows you to um, define blocks of code that are only available for a certain version of iOS or OS X. So if you... And it's only available for Swift, but if you have code that has to run on OS 9, uh, I'm sorry, iOS 9 and iOS 8, and you're using something new that did not exist in iOS 9, or using something old that was deprecated um, before iOS 8, then you could put it in this block of code, uh, surrounded by available, and the, the system will know which uh, block of code to, to execute according to the to the device or the uh, operation system of the user. Does that make sense? Yeah, so I'm familiar with availability checking, but I'm wondering okay. what what's actually going on here where you say, I didn't know about it either. Is he talking about well, something a little yes. more specific? He okay. does. Apparently, I I didn't know about that. Uh, I, I never even tried. But apparently, you can use different conditions and use the availability with it. So you can create a Boolean condition uh, and use availability with it so that you don't have to create different if statements. Uh, for example, you want to check that um, it's version 9 and that this feature is enabled or, uh, for example, location is enabled and that the user is using iOS 9, you could put it in one, in one if statement. Oh, and that's, interesting. Uh, I see. It's a good feature Wait, okay. to know because I haven't seen it anywhere else. Um, it's a okay, little so feature, now, but again, something that, you know, good to learn and good to know about. Yeah, totally. Okay, so I understand it now. You can use pound available with other conditions just by using a comma, not a double ampersand. Okay, I totally get it now. So yes. in if you were to do that, basically you'd allow, allow yourself to maybe write some write less code or your control flow might be better. Uh, is mm -hmm. that kind of the, the benefit of that? Yeah. You can create uh, complex conditions without using multiple if statements. That's interesting. So just availability checking is like any other condition at this point, in a way. It is. Yes. It has special syntax, which is not very nice, but it is possible. That's, that's the beauty of it. That's cool. Right on. All right. Well, thank you for sharing that. So we have come to the end of this podcast. But before we go, I want to let all the Swift coders out there know where they can reach you, if at all, online. So can they contact you on Twitter or do you have a website mm -hmm. or anything like that? 
I think Twitter is the best place to connect because there's a lot of tech leaders there, including this uh, Redic gentleman, which I follow. And I think it's the ple- best place for me to learn about new, new things because Twitter updates a lot faster than anywhere else on the internet. Um, totally. I love Twitter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, for me, Twitter is a, the place to connect with people who otherwise would not be available to me. And I wouldn't even know about them. Yeah, I also follow some of the Swift um, compiler developers over there. Yeah, me too, like Latner and all that. So what's your Twitter handle? Um, okay, my Twitter handle, handle is at Y-A-R-1-V-N. And that's the number one, and I'll link to that uh, in the yes. show notes for sure. Cool. Mm-hmm. So before we be go, uh, before we go, the very last thing, one piece of advice for people learning Swift. Go. Whew. Just um, keep on reading, keep on writing code. As that's the only way to learn. You know, you can't learn from just reading, and you can't learn just from writing code. You have to do both. Beautiful. Very well said, Yariv Nassim. Thank you so much for coming today speaking with us sharing your story about you know where you came from and how you got to where you are now and your experience with learning swift and some really cool tips and tricks and again i'm really excited to see you in two weeks so from me and all of the swift coders out there thank you so much for joining us yeah happy to help and that's the show ladies and gentlemen i hope you enjoyed listening to the swift coders podcast feel free to share the show with a friend leave a review on iTunes, or recommend us on Overcast. If you have any questions, comments, or just want to say hi, contact me on Twitter. Until next time, go swiftly, my friends. Mm -hmm.